Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Jazztopia, my new show in which I speak to some of the great minds in jazz and improvised music to get their perspectives and philosophies on the art, as well as their harrowing tales from the long and winding path to musical righteousness. I'm your host, Bobby Spellman, and I hope everybody's doing well out there. I know we've had a a turbulent, unsettling couple of weeks in COVID lockdown, but I hope you're all staying healthy mentally and physically and productive, and you're able to get some rests and check out some new music, some new art. I know that we're in a little bit of a live music drought here, and I think we're going to be out of shows for the next couple weeks. But fortunately, uh, all the creative musicians have been turning the creative dial up to 10 and releasing a lot of really great new videos and music uh, collaborations and uh, some other records that have been on the shelf for a little while are being released now. Uh, I've got some records I've been checking out recently I thought you might enjoy. Uh, pianist Chris McCarthy's got a new album out called Still Time to Quit. It's a really great band. It's really great tunes. Chris wrote some great tunes in there. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Check it out for sure. The Seth Weaver Big Band's got a new record out called Truth. Really beautiful arrangements for big band and often uh, with vocals. Uh, really great record. I think you'll like it a lot. And uh, lastly, trumpeter Peter Evans has a new album out called Being and Becoming. Got to check that out recently, and uh, really amazing stuff. For those of you who know Peter's playing, he is a wizard. Uh, it's an amazing record, a really great band, and some really interesting pieces. So be sure to check that out. Be sure to support all you the artists that you love as they're creating from the comfort of their own homes and uh, putting out new records. Be sure to check them out. Uh, I've got an announcement today. I'll be releasing my own record uh, with my nonette entitled Revenge of the Cool on May 22nd. It'll be coming out on Sunnyside Records. Uh, this record's been in the works for a long time now. Uh, shout out to everybody who helped support the campaign by uh, contributing to the Kickstarter campaign and pre-ordering the album. Uh, it's been in the works for a little while. We recorded it last May. Uh, it's a really great band. I'm proud of the music. It's all original music for the instrumentation from Miles Davis's Birth of the Cool. It's a little bit of cool jazz meets free jazz meets everything in between. And uh, I think it, I'm really happy with it. And I'm happy to finally birth it upon the world. So if you get a chance and you want to keep up to date with the release of the Revenge of the Cool, uh, you can follow me on social media, on Facebook at Bobby Spellman Music or on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman. I'll keep you up to date for sure. All right. Well, without further ado here, I'd like to introduce our guest today, one of the finest free jazz guitar players of all time, Mr. Joe Morris. I spoke with Joe back before the lockdown at his place in Connecticut, and we were able to talk about his path in free music and improvisation, his philosophies on improvisation and composition and education and everything in between. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Joe, for those of you who don't know, is one of the greatest free jazz guitar players or free improvised music guitar players of all time. Uh, he's been a pillar in the free music scene since the late 70s. He's made over 150 albums as a leader, co-leader, and a sideman. And he's played with people including Anthony Braxton, John Zorn, Evan Parker, Matthew Shipp, William Parker, Sonny Murray, and an incredible list of other free musicians. So... Uh, definitely check him out if you get the chance. He's a phenomenal player, really an amazing, amazing musician. Uh, he plays not only guitar, but also bass and sometimes drums, uh, and some ukulele and, and uh, mandolin and other various things like that, uh, multi-instrumentalist. Multi -instrumentalist. 
He plays a lot in Boston and New York City, and as, uh, as well as uh, around his hometown in uh, New Haven, Connecticut. So be sure, if you can, to check him out. He's always collaborating with an amazing uh, array of different musicians, coming up with new creative stuff. I've never left uh, Joe Morris' performance disappointed, so be sure to check him out. Uh, we had a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I'm sure you will, too. So without further ado, here he is, Joe Morris. All right, good. Well, thanks for doing this, Joe. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, so <clears throat> you have a pretty remarkable career in the sense that you are able to do exactly what you want to do and make it work. Well, thanks. Thanks right? for noticing. I mean, this is like you're, you're in a rare state of being able to play uh, fairly niche music and, and make a whole experience out of it. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's thanks for noticing. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, part of that is, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think being, I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s now and continuing to do it yeah. for a long time uh, means that, you know, I've already kind of accomplished some stuff I imagined doing a long time ago. Uh, I already, yeah, I already had a kind of experience of, almost being a big deal in jazz and getting a lot of press and getting in downbeat polls and then deciding that I had to do some other stuff and having a lot of that fall apart, which meant that I sort of rebounded and had a very, a much uh, more, uh, I guess, independent determination to like not even care hmm. about what anybody thought I ought to do. And that sure. coincided with getting... A teaching job, which started as one student every two weeks, and 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 you know, gradually built up to being, you know, a thing I could make a living at. Yeah. Which meant that I only need to make part of my living as a performer, as a recording artist, you know, as a as a musician, not just as a musician who teaches. And so I've tried to take capitalize on that, you know, freedom to just do what I want. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah. So, so we'll go back to the beginning real quick. So how yeah. did you how did you get into music in the first place, and then how did you turn over the dark side into uh, free improvisation? The dark side is what got me into music. Is that right? I, yeah. Um, I mean, I played trumpet when I was eleven in school. I had a terrible, um, uh, like adolescence of being a you know a truant and having all kinds of conflict in my life and family, and you know, um, so it made it meant that my sort of education was really unstable. And um, so I gave up playing the trumpet because that was a school thing. And, of course, this is during the 60s when the Beatles were big and the Rolling Stones were big. And 50 years ago, last month or in December, my friend Danny, who was uh, like my best friend, was visited by his cousin Frank, who played guitar. That was when I was uh, 14. Mm. And um, um, Frank showed me how to play some chords, and I gradually earned enough money, a hundred bucks, really. My brother loaned me fifty, and I, I earned maybe fifty or sixty bucks doing odd jobs. And I bought a, the cheapest guitar and amplifier I could buy, and I started practicing. And um, we had a band that was pretty bad, 
starting that year. It was pretty, it's like pre-punk bad. It was yeah. like. That's the way to start, though. Is it? Yeah, That's we just did it. We did the same thing. It's yeah, like, right? You, you just, just do it. You just do it because you need to do it. Yeah. So I, that's the dark side part. It's like I needed to do it, and it made me happy. It made me think. In this, all this chaos I had around my life and my school problems and my family issues and, um, you know, music focused me and gave me something to work on and sort of taught me how to learn in a way that was, you know, useful to me. Mm. And uh, I, got, I got better at it. You know, I, that was a, a thing. Like I... Um, we played Beatles songs, and uh, my friend Frank uh, took the solos, and I sang and played the guitar, and then gradually I started taking solos, and then we played Rolling Stone songs, and I could play the, the solos on those better, so I played solos, which got me into playing the blues, which meant that I practiced, and I learned about like major, minor pentatonic scales in mm -hmm. different keys, although first I learned them in just positions. And played the blues and then I had other friends who were into some other kinds of music and um, I got into Hendrix uh, which was you know Hendrix died when I was 15 but uh, around when I was 15 going on 16 I went to an alternative high school in New Haven called the Unschool of New Haven which was a student-run high school mm. we had these crazy Yaleys and other people, Harvard people, who started this school it was like a free school, which was a thing back then. Yeah. And, it, and we made most of the decisions, and we could study whatever we wanted. And so I concentrated on music, and I had all these friends who were into pretty sophisticated ideas about music. And we were down the street from the Yale School of Music, and we are in New Haven, which had a really great music scene. So I went from sort of playing blues and playing rock and wanting to be something after Jimi Hendrix and then watching that kind of disintegrate into kind of bad Las Vegas kind of, you know, glitter rock. Sure. Yeah. It was yeah, like, yeah. that wasn't the, that didn't hit me very well. Um, showbiz, you know? Yeah. Uh, gradually, um, well, at, at the unschool, we would improvise and we would play with, you know, um, uh, bottleneck slides, and we were just, you know, really literally sit around and smoke weed and play with a black light on and improvise. Sure. This is, you know, 1971, so 16. Yeah. And just that, free improvisation. Yeah, we just that, play. Maybe yeah, we have a play. couple of chords or we jam on that. And, mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, we're, we're making tape recordings and, and like doing sound on tape. We're just being kids, we're just trying to be cool being like psychedelic musicians and um that led to learning about you know frank zappa and and you know that opened up a bunch of things like the first time i heard about cecil taylor was from reading about frank zappa because i heard about buell neidlinger who played bass with frank zappa and also played with cecil taylor ah. and coincidentally was the first bass player at new england conservatory was responsible for that anyway there's a lot to say about him but because of that, turned me on to Cecil Taylor. Mm -hmm. We got into playing jazz out of the real book. I, I took some guitar lessons with a guy named Tony Lombardozzi in New Haven, who's still around. And he and I were both Mary Halverson's teachers, which is an oh, amazing right? coincidence. <laughs> and uh, um, um, then, um, you know, that sort of led to one thing. We got into Miles Davis and the electric stuff. And then from that, we got into Coltrane. And then from that, we heard about Albert Eiler. And from that, we heard about Cecil Taylor. And then, you know, all that was even better. And then 
Am I going on too long? No, no. Okay. It's and, great. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. It's all it, very interesting the way that all of this is, you know, you find something from yeah. something else or what brings you into that world. Yeah. And and um, then in New Haven, we met Michael Gregory Jackson, who is now goes as Michael Gregory uh, because of the obvious conflict, who was a guitar sure. player who was connected to Oliver Lake and some AACM people. And just getting going... At the same time that we heard about the Art Ensemble of Chicago, which is why we noticed Michael, mm-hmm. and at the same time that Wadada Leo Smith moved to New Haven. So Leo Smith li- lived in New Haven, which brought the AACM to our doorsteps mm. and caused us to be interested in that. So by 1973, 74, late 73... You know, I was listening to, still listening to Hendrix and all kinds of rock music, but also to Albert Eiler, to Coltrane, especially late Coltrane, which was really, you know, my favorite, um, to Cecil Taylor, uh, to Stockhausen in the library, to going to Yale concerts of Stockhausen and Messien, and mm. to the symphony on every Friday night to hear all kinds of stuff. It was free. You know, I saw... Um, uh, lots of improvised music around New Haven, and I started going to New York to the Village Vanguard. I, you know, I I got to meet Pharaoh Sanders and and Rasan Roland Kirk just by being there and saying hello, and so the whole thing sort of came together. And at the same time, like everybody my age, we tried to be kind of fusion guitar players, and we were all trying to imitate John McLaughlin, which mm-hmm. was you know this towering, you know monolith of like technical mastery sure, you know it was yeah, overwhelming yeah. to all of us after Hendrix is like okay that's over now we have to do this and I I know there was a critical point that I remember and I feel lucky to have remembered this that while practicing hours a day to try to play like John McLaughlin and being okay at it you know not not good enough to think I could do it but thinking you know learning a lot and getting sure. a lot of technique yeah, yeah, yeah. and trying to play standards and le- using modes and arpeggios over chords a pretty simple way of playing changes and stuff like that trying to do that trying to play in time you know things like that mm-hmm. trying to play with Miles Davis records and Coltrane records and all that stuff while practicing this McLaughlin stuff working on scales and trying to be really fast and I would get bored and while I my brain would kind of shut down, I'd start playing my own stuff. Yeah. And one day I just went, why am I trying to play like him instead of trying to play like me? I mean, if I really admire him, which I did, and all these other people so much, the reason I thought the it sort of hit me that the thing that I admired the most about them, and I'm sure this sense was influenced by reading about Braxton and Leo Smith you know, people who said very similar things. If I was trying to be like him, I was sort of missing the point. The yeah. point was to try to be like me, but to try to make what I did as rigorous as anything else on my terms. And so from that point on, I've just tried to play like me. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, And that's really what draws us into all these people, it seems to me, like the reason that we like... Right. Whoever, you know, Anthony Braxton or Albert Eiler or Coltrane or any of this is that they've been able to find a way to sound most like themselves. That's it. I, I mean, I think that's it. I think that's that's m- missing more now than it was then. You know, like a lot sure. of things back then in the 70s, it was a very open idea about what how to draw things from music. Lots of people did it. 
you know, McLaughlin was drawn from Coltrane, but also from Indian music and Miles Davis and, you know, um, uh, Braxton was drawing from Stockhausen and also, and Webern and also Lenny Tristano and Ives was having his centennial in New Haven and they played all of his pieces. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, it was just tons of stuff. You go to the record store and there'd be sections of music and I look, we looked at all of them, you know, and we went yeah. and listened to records and, you know, kind of spaced out on the music. We, we, we had a, a, a real like a, emotional connection to all of it like it, w it was how we defined ourselves as as young people sure yeah I, I had a similar experience as a kid and i it drew me into all kinds of different like like to me art blakey was our punk rock in a certain way like really we had this whole experience of the, the, those of us who knew the stuff it was like a visceral thing but to a lot of other people jazz or improvised music or whatever was kind of an academic experience and right it, it sort of went in that direction of oh we learned this in school and we have to do it but t but to me it was always about that and I, I i sort of retain that but i wonder if we've gone in a direction in music education where it's become a lot about like well you have to know the rules and you have to follow these particular things it makes it hard to do to let's say pursue your own voice to the greatest degree if you're told at every angle that well, you also ha you have to be able to do this specifically. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a balance there, of course, to be able to play and to have the technique and everything. But I, I mean, I have to say, I was disappointed when I got into playing jazz and finding finding out that a lot of people in it had that idea. Even people I really admired, they would kind of, you know, they were kind of, you know, straight in their point of view, even though their music was was pretty far out. I, yeah. That was kind of disappointing, and it was really disappointing. I felt really left out. I, I mean, I still do in a certain way, in a big way, from most. Uh, music scenes because I didn't go to music school. Mm -hmm. I'm self-taught, you know, um, there's a sort of sense that, you know, there's a right way to do stuff. You know, I, I kind of upend that a lot. Like a lot of times as a teacher, I get a, you know, a first year guitar student or something. I might say, so who do you think is the best guitar player? Just to find out what these guys, these people are interested sure. in. And, you know, it's not uncommon for people to say, well, Jim Hall is the best guitar player which is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. He's a great guitar player. Mm -hmm. um, and I go, well, you realize that Jim Hall invented that. you know? And they look at me like I'm out of my mind. But Jim Hall invented that. Invented you know? what Jim Hall did. Y yeah. Sure. Jim Hall invented what people perceive as the right way to do it. Sure, yeah. You know, and it's and, the same way with all of our heroes. Yeah. It's like all Miles people, Davis, yeah. he invented that. He just it's, came it, up with it. Right. Yeah, he figured it out. Yeah. It, it wasn't like there was a law that he was trying to live up to or some scientific formula that that was supposed to be uh you know followed in order to be correct these are creative inventions by people that become you know the sort of aesthetic technical imperative that other people who don't allow their imagination to have any any sort of say in what they do that they just follow to think that that they're doing it right to be involved sure. and that ends up over overwhelming the other thing and uh, I guess to go back to what you first said about me have, seem, seeming to be able to do whatever I want, I'm determined to just keep doing that. Yeah. You know, I've, I feel like it has to be retained. It sure. ha otherwise, it's over. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like I'm the only one holding it down. There's loads of people out there doing that. But um, as, uh, I, I, I am determined to keep doing what I feel like doing. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's only That's music, you know? Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's not... It's not uh, 
brain surgery. Like no one will die if my music is terrible <laughs> or incomprehensible to people. Yeah. No one will be injured. Some people's sensibilities might be hurt, but that's good. Yeah, that's for the better. That's, that's what, what we're supposed that's to what do. That's what we want. Right. right, of course. That's yeah. what we're supposed to do. All right, so you're a new you're in New Haven. You're 17, 18, whatever it is, 16, 17, 18. Yeah. What's the path now? Did you say to yourself, I want to be a professional musician? And and how do you go about doing that? Because it's not an easy thing. No. Certainly, if you want to say, all right, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to play in a wedding band, or I'm going to be the guy who plays guitar for the, you know, Temptations or something like that. It's a different vibe. But if you say, I'm going to pursue an artistic path, yeah. what was your, what was your move? How did you, how did you make that work? Well, it's important to know that by that time, by 15, 16, and this is no slight on my parents who did the best that they could with me. I was supporting myself and working, and by 17, I dropped out of the alternative high school and got a full-time job as a, at a hamburger joint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I had already moved out of my house. In a lot wow. of ways, I, I think of myself as like a feral kid. Sure. I, I really, there was reason for me to be on my own, but I was on my own. I had, you know, no, my parents weren't capable of giving me basically any kind of support, even though they were beautiful people, they, they couldn't do it. And so it was a matter of like surviving, uh, day to day and working. So, you know, I, um, my sort of goal was partly just to crawl up from the very bottom. I would say that the, the only thing that kept me from being on, on like in a worse situation was, uh, quite frankly, the fact that I, I didn't have to be I wasn't shut out of opportunities in life because uh, of, you know, my race or anything like that. You know, as a white kid, I could get a job and I could walk down the street without people being suspicious of me. <laughs> Otherwise, it was pretty low. Yeah. And, and uh, so I just worked. I worked and I tried to sort out what was going to be the thing to get me out of that situation into something better. And I, you know, at the time I was like a, when I was a little kid and a teenager, I was I was pretty funny and I was a really good mimic, and I was really interested in movies and I read books about film and I, you know, I was really into art in New Haven. We could go to the Yale Art Gallery and stand in front of, you know, uh, Jackson Pollock paintings, you know, at like 15 years old for free, and I did that a lot. And I was trying to figure out which artistic direction was right for me and. Um, uh, it just seemed to me that the really the free jazz thing mm-hmm. was the best one because it was the most do-it-yourself. Sure. This was pre-punk music. You know, there was no punk rock then. That yeah. came a little bit later. And I, there's a chance that if I had um, not gone the direction I went in, I might have gone to that. Although I didn't really, the, the, the sort of... Uh, you know, motorcycle jacket kind of punk guy kind of vibe didn't really appeal to me, sure. like artistically or socially. Yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. much more of a kind of a psychedelic kind of person. I wasn't really, I mean, I looked like a hippie, but I wasn't a hippie. I was more like a long haired beatnik in a lot of ways. Sure. I, I yeah. liked that more. And yeah. And I was interested in positive things like art and, you know, words and music. And it, when I found out, things like Albert Eiler and when I discovered that people like Leo Smith were making their own records and that you could really kind of direct yourself completely in this area of music, I I just decided, like, I remember making the decision, I'm going in that way and I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to work really hard to try to succeed in that. Yeah. And um, 
it was like a very clear decision. And I mean, it's really kind of audacious and like crazy and insane. But I would say by the time I was 18 years old, I had from, from um, influences I had, I had this sort of idea that I was going to be, you know, a free jazz guitarist, which was not a thing you could declare about <laughs> yourself back then. There were a few people in the world uh -huh. who did it. And I still thought there were things that were going on in it that hadn't been done, you know, and I worked really hard to draw on the influence that I didn't think, influences I thought weren't being used by some of those people. Sure. Um, well, give me some examples of those. Well, there was Sonny Sherrock, who mm -hmm. was great, and yeah. there was Derek Bailey, two, you know, kind of opposite poles of that. And, you know, I worked really hard to understand what they were doing and to find what they weren't doing. Yeah. Um, there were people who would compare me to both of them, which I take as a compliment, but they would compare me negatively, of course, which I also take as a compliment. Sure. And um, um, I... Um, you know, I drew on different things. And, and so, you know, I had this kind of ridiculous idea that I would build up this way of playing the guitar that would probably give me a gig. Sure. <laughs> it's it's but, insane. But at this point, you're saying to yourself, what can I do to craft my own yeah. approach that's yeah. going to be, that's going to sort of forge my own path through the thing or the, the exactly. path less traveled or whatever it is. Yeah. So, so what was it that they were doing that you, I don't know what the best way to put this is, but what was it they were doing that you either wanted to do or where did you find that open space? Like what was it that you were thinking about? I'll tell like, you exactly. Great. Sonny, who's great, is essentially a free modal guitar player. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean that he's worried, that he's concerned with playing a, you know, a, a Phrygian mode or, or a Dorian mode. But the fact is that his his playing was modal in that you could hear that there was at least an implied root. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's, you know, it's kind of post-Coltrane, which I love. And, you know, I admire anybody who can play like that. And I, Sonny Sherrock was incredible. But there were also loads of modal guitar players in that period, John McLaughlin being the towering sure. monolithic master of that. So that was covered. Um, to do it in the free modal kind of way, well, that was Sonny's. It was Sonny's space. Derek, on the other hand, was basically using sounds and using har harmonics and what people, what I already knew at the time were called, you know, extended techniques. And so one of them has a driving sense of pulse, you know, late modal jazz, you know, free jazz, driving sense of pulse, some Albert Eiler sort of stuff in there, um, of course, which is great. And not to diminish or simplify any of that at all, but it was identifiable. I could define it as being a thing, especially in contrast to other things. Sure. And then there's Derek, and at the time, I, I might feel a little bit differently about it. Now there's sort of like no pulse, and there's like not about melody, and it's not about energy, and it's not about groove, and it's not about drive. So there's a bunch of extremes. The thing that I found that wasn't really being dealt with at the time was Cecil. Okay. On the guitar. And, uh, you know, flash decades ahead, I had a conversation about this with Cecil Taylor. And he's like, well, what about Sonny Sherrock? Or he would say, well, what about Sonny Sherrock? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, Sonny's like a free modal guitar player. And he went like to me like, and you. <laughs> like, like I, and I said, well, you know, I'm trying to deal with unit structures. I'm trying to deal with you and Jimmy. And yeah. I, so Jimmy Lyons was like my hero, mm -hmm. uh, you know, early from 20 around on and for a long time, but also Eric Dolphy. Yeah. Because guitar players didn't deal with Eric Dolphy. And um, 
while other saxophone players of the time, the alto players, you know, there was this huge expansion of music and from the alto saxophone. You know, you got Ornette, you got Jimmy Lyons, you got Dolphy, you got uh, um, later on, you get Braxton, Roscoe Mitchell, you had Oliver Lake, you had Julius Hempville. You know, there's just all this stuff going on. And I'm thinking, where's the guitar players dealing with this stuff? Sure. And, you know, again, to give credit to someone like Michael Gregory Jackson, he was dealing with it, and he had his own area he was dealing with. And so I don't want to go into that. I want to leave people alone out of respect for what they do. But I didn't think that anybody could really do unit structures on the guitar. Sure. So I worked for a really long time. Once I figured that out, I was like, I know what I'm going to do. Yeah. And the first record I ever made, which was in 1983 is, is shows that. Um, there was a bunch of things like that had like kind of a blues sensibility, but were also sort of a unit structures kind of thing. And I was really influenced by Leroy Jenkins, the violinist, mm -hmm. and the revolutionary ensemble, his group, and by Threadgill and Fred Hopkins and Steve McCall, their group Air was hugely important to me. And so I found some things that I thought informed my way of thinking that were connected and of course, Albert Eiler was big in that, um, but it's very hard to play like Albert Eiler on the guitar because you know it just you need breath. There's a lot of air. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah. air, and and um, um, but those things were present in the structure, in this sort of methodology that was being used in all that music I just mentioned, and sure. so so um, and a lot of it comes from Cecil Taylor. I mean, most of it, and Sonny Murray, and and um, Jimmy Lyons, and so yeah. I I kind of did in a way what um, I later learned Steve Lacey did, which was I took a lot of the principles of that and I started composing things to put myself in more specific, more personal kind of situations so that um, I had a kind of general methodology I worked in and then I composed things to make specific sort of templates to work off of in my own composition. And then I started thinking about building up a whole sort of support system for my guitar thing which again is the kind of thing i learned and um you know worked my job as a cab driver or a bartender or a house painter or a babysitter or a construction worker i worked as a technical assistant at a film company i became a piano mover and a and a, and a furniture mover and a truck driver and you know i did every kind of work i could do to support my determination to be a musician. So like I was saying before, I decided I was going to be a free jazz guitar player, and uh, which wasn't a thing really at the time. I, I had friends who told me about New England Conservatory where at the time Rand Blake was like a kind of beacon of some different thinking. Yeah. You know, I think he still is, but at the time there was, there was him, there was Bill Dixon. That's it. Sure. There was nobody teaching anything like that. So yeah. I couldn't have gotten into NEC, but I thought, man, that's a cool place. And, um, uh, you know, I noticed that people I admired, like Don Cherry and and Anthony Braxton and, you know, Coltrane and people like that, they had, like, regular lives. They had families and kids. And you see pictures of them with their kids. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. You could do this and have, like, a regular life, have sure. a happy family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, in high school, I would come out here to Guilford, where I live, because uh, we had we knew people that lived out here, teachers from the school and relatives of some of the students. They lived out here out in the woods in these like kind of weird houses, and they were artists and writers and stuff. And so by the time I was like 17, which is, you know, when I was, I had already dropped out of school, 
I had this idea, well, I'm going to be a free jazz guitarist who has a family. I'm going to teach at New England Conservatory, and I'm going to live in Guilford, Connecticut. And I can't say there was a point where I planned any of that to happen except sure. the guitar thing. Yeah, but yeah, the yeah. guitar thing made all those other things happen. That's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> it really, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. The NEC thing is an absolute miracle. Sure. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it's one of the reasons I take it so, like, as such a precious thing because it's like a miracle. But I actually sure. did imagine those things. So I guess part of it is just imagining that some of these things mean something sure yeah. and can happen yeah and, and nec is still a, an amazing place for that i mean that's yeah. that was the nec was the only place that i applied to go to grad school because really? i knew that they had a free jazz department essentially that there was free uh, music wait, I, i'm the, the free jazz you're the guy <laughs> yeah well you're no, the there's guy. a little but bit there's more. also yeah. i mean there's other whole, people do the, it too but yeah. it's hope you know yeah, the ram blake is yeah. still there you know yeah. the, the legacy Lots of different of versions of it george russell and of uh you know it's definitely true yeah there's a there's a theoretical uh component that's held by individual people there who's, who'd share it with others, with yeah. students. And, and that's really what the place is about. Hank Isnetsky, who's the department chair of mm -hmm. contemporary improvisation, he says things like that a lot uh, in meetings and stuff. Um, uh, and, you know, he's not exactly Mr. Free Jazz. At the same time, everything he does, like everything everybody else does, goes to the, the collection of information that the students are supposed to gather to develop their own way of dealing with things. Sure. And, um, you know, everybody there is pretty much like that. And, and, and it holds that and has resisted a lot of the sort of trends that have come down to make jazz more formal. There's a little bit of that there. To make jazz more based on philosophy, there's a little bit of that there. But they don't kick in more. It's really like, here's a way to do it. Here's a mode of practice. Here's another way of thinking about how you... Here's some examples. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, a, a pretty open forum kind of about music. Sure. Yeah. And it... And it I think the whole atmosphere of the place encourages trying to search for your own voice in the music. Yeah, I mean, we talk about that in faculty meetings. It's in the literature. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of it is, like, we get students like you, these, you know, monstrously strong musicians that come there. What do you do? You either ruin the student by saying, <laughs> you're wrong, here's what you're supposed to do, or right. you add something else to what they do. Sure. And, and um, I know some of that ruining might be going on, but I think everybody's expectation is that they'll tell tell you what you know, what they know, and that you'll figure out how you want to use it. Yeah, which is like kind of exactly what I did. You know? Sure, I, yeah, I yeah, just yeah. En encountered a lot of different things, and ultimately, I was lucky enough. <laughs> I mean, not you know, I, it's I, I've, some people would think that that's a crazy way to put it, but personally, I, I was lucky enough to. Um, find something that I could self-direct and I could evaluate, I could, I could evaluate the process, progress I was making mm -hmm. and, and I on could, your own terms. on my own terms. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's still going like that. It's, it's more like that. I would say in the last maybe five or six years, I've determined to remind myself all the time to be exactly the way I was when I was 18, to have it be a mystery. and But at this point, I have a better way to facilitate the use of that mysterious part. Sure. Yeah. You know, I have microphones up here in this space. I have I have opportunities to tour and perform and, and to release records and to get press and things like that. People ask me questions, and I can talk to students. So the more I investigate the unknown in my own music, 
the happier I am. And, and um, I guess that goes back to your first question, like, or your first statement, like how, you know, that I have a lot of things going on my own terms. Uh, part of that is following my heroes who did that. And the other thing is assuming that at a certain point, I'd have to be my own hero. And sure. <laughs> I have yeah, yeah, to yeah. just do it. I have to just do it and take yeah. the risk of failure. Yeah. And it, it, it's an interesting point because I think it's not easy to maintain. I think we all have that idea of like what, oh, th that first time you heard that record when you're 18 or like the excitement of it in the beginning. And then you get into the to the, let's say, routine of playing music and the different music that you're that you're trying to find. And it's easy to fall into habits and forget about that energy or the spark that brought you into it in the first place. But it sounds like what you're talking about is just is that idea of investigating the unknown of just trying to of trying to push forward into realms that you're less familiar with or that you can try new things or re reignite the concepts or whatever. Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, and I've seen that happen with a lot of people, you know, like I didn't learn to play wedding gigs, you know, sure. I'd had friends who did that and I thought it was better for me to, you know, bang nails than to do that because I had an idea that I want of what I wanted to do. And I thought it would kind of get uh, kind of worked out of my system if I didn't work on it all the time. So in that way, I, I would say I probably um, um, missed some opportunities to play that I would have enjoyed. And I never looked down on it. I never thought, oh, those those idiots are playing weddings. I always, I always admired people who could do a lot of things that um, I could do them. I can do them. I could do them now. I could do them in the last, uh, you know, 25, 30 years, but at the time I probably couldn't have done them. And, mm. um, you know, I was a little bit strict about what it was I wanted to do, but then I started coming in contact with better musicians and more musicians. I mean, there's never been that many people that want to do what I do anyway. Um, but I got involved with more uh, versatile musicians and, you know, I, I always respected people doing a lot of different things, but I have seen that a lot of them... Um, maybe don't step out of what's um, working for them to do the thing that they imagine might work for them mm -hmm. uh, quite enough. It, it's, it's a, it's a, a, a bit of a um, problem. Sure. Did you ever worry that doing the day, like regular day gigs was going to take away from your ability to play music or did that ever, did you ever run into problems with that? Did you yeah, it was a constant problem. Um, uh, you know, it's been a balancing thing uh, until I got the teaching job, because you shut off a part of yourself to go to work, you yeah. know, and maybe there's somebody there. Like, I mean, I was a furniture mover and a piano mover. I was around a lot of musicians who were doing that for money and they talk about music. And, you know, some of them were rock musicians or folk musicians. Some of them played like straight ahead stuff, but they were musicians. And so you could kind of be yourself. But I also worked around a bunch of people who, you know, uh, would equate uh, you be me being a musician or being sensitive to anything in the arts as a reason to let loose on their homophobia, <laughs> you know, okay. which was like a big thing. Their macho stuff, Weird. and and you know, I had to spend a lot of time around people who uh, were not cool, um, sure. and that was pretty rough. The physical part of it, I didn't mind. I kind of liked a lot of it. I liked the um, I like working hard and um yeah i didn't mind that but the the social part of it was tough it was um you know it's it's threatening to people what do you because, mean well 
I think being the kind of person that I am and wanting to do what I want to do can threaten people. It can threaten musicians. It threatens musicians. It threatens any, a lot of people who aren't musicians. Some people aren't like that, but I found like Boston was a particularly tough place to be just myself. And, you know, people would say, even when I was working and making records and, and, uh, you know, going on tour of Europe, neighbors would say, so what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a musician. They go, oh, you can't make any money at that. And I, yeah. you know, they'd say things like that. That's like a, that's kind of a universal though. But. Like who, who would ever talk to people of like course. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, then other musicians would say, so what do you, what do you play? And I tell them, they go like, nobody likes that. Or like, you'll never get anywhere doing that. And, you know, I'm not saying any of them are wrong, but it's all been kind of, you know, brutal to deal with, you know. Sure. Well, you have to have your own, you have to have, you have to have constant conviction in what it is that you're doing, which isn't easy when, the, the, when there's no external support for it in some respects. Or yeah, you have to build up the support. The yeah, you have to do the whole thing yourself. It, yeah. it's a, I think maybe this is what a lot of young people don't get um, as a kind of opportunity, although I know I tell them a lot. You improvise the whole thing. You improvise the whole thing. Yeah. It's not just about improvising the music on the stage. Sure. You improvise the direction you take. You improvise the configuration of a group of people you work with. You improvise where you get to perform. Sometimes things that are already established are, are there for you. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, that's how this whole thing happened for the, forever. And if you trace it back to its origins, to African-American people, they had to improvise everything. 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 I mean, how to get food, how to survive, what a family configuration was. Sure. You know, what their sense of history was, how to, a transportation system, a wedding ritual, a funeral. Ri they improvised everything. And so we're following that. And obviously, there's a thing in that that is incredibly, profoundly humane to me. Yeah. And so that's what I like about it. Sure. And as a kind of feral kid, who was already at the rock bottom uh, at 14 years old, uh, I can tell you that having heroes and teachers who were born into a worse situation, they could be the greatest people on the planet, but they had to overcome this incredible limit put on them due to racism. Sure. That they did this and had such a, a high-minded... Uh, elevated sense about its purpose and its value to people that those were my heroes is really what totally drove me into this. Like I, I, I never think, well, you know, yeah, but you know, they have millions of dollars and they can do whatever they want. <laughs> I was like, right. Yeah, there yeah. are people who are like going to do this thing because it means something to them sure. and it means something to their survival as, as a person. And I mean, over the years I've learned, you know, so many of my heroes, you know, they had no money or they struggled way harder than I ever did. And they worked other jobs and they, you know, never got a gig and, you know, they died very young. So uh, I keep that kind of thing in perspective every day, all the time that that like I'm trying to be involved in a thing that I think is really like um, high human endeavor with a tremendous amount of dignity. Sure. To it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's go back a little bit. Yeah. So you go. So you're 
you're now saying to yourself, how do I do unit? How do I play unit structures yeah. on the guitar? Yeah. What's the methodology? Because everybody understands the methodology in trying to play bebop or trying to learn how to play over changes or yeah. transcription, and then you know trying to glean your own sound from your influences and various things like that. How did you in that stage go to say, okay, this is what I'm trying to. Th this is how I'm going to approach the sort of practice of it or the methodology involved. Well, I listened to everything I could find, and maybe being a mimic. You know, like I could tell jokes and, and imitate Groucho Marx and, you know, sure, yeah, W.C. Yeah. Fields and things like that back then. Imitate everybody around me. I had good ears. Yeah. So, um, you know, I start to notice things that happen. And I can't say I could describe them then. Um, but I also read everything anyone ever said about it. Um, uh -huh. I read what critics wrote about it. I read what Cecil Taylor said about it. I read what Jimmy Lyons and Andrew Cyril and... Uh, Everybody. I read what Anthony Braxton said about Cecil Taylor's music. I read everything. I, mm -hmm. I'm I like a hardcore scholar of this stuff in the in a very do-it-yourself way. I'm a big fan of it. You know, this is like what I do. So yeah. I just immersed myself in every little bit of information I could get, and I played along with the records. I mean, the reason I thought I could do anything was because I put records on and played along with them. Sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I don't think I could have played Giant Steps when I was uh, 18, but I could play along with One Down, One Up on New Thing at Newport because yeah. I put the record on and and played along with it mm -hmm. and listened to tried to copy what Coltrane did. Um, so, you know, I got so I could play along with the stuff, and then I started kind of figuring out what it was and reading what Cecil said and listening to... I, I think for me, the, the thing that really helped me to understand... Cecil and I use this example with all of my students when I talk to them about unit structures is listening to Jimmy Lyons play alto saxophone with him mm -hmm. because the ease this the clearest example of how melody is used and how that melody is improvised on or what I would say processed though how those melodic structures are are uh, expanded upon is is very very evident in Jimmy Lyons' plan. So mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to understand bebop, you listen to Charlie Parker. Sure. You could listen to some guy that you heard at the at the bar down the street play like Charlie Parker. But that's a that's like the last little drip in the in the in the farthest tributary off the smallest river. Right. If you sure. go to the big river, there's more information there. And yeah. so I I drew a lot on Jimmy Lyons and I tried to you know comprehend how he made a phrase and tried to play like him. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a, it's a fairly organic approach. It's the idea that you're going to sit down and just try it out over and over, trial and error, just try different things. And there try was to... no other way to, to develop it. You, there was no, unless you went and studied with Cecil or took lessons from Jimmy, which I didn't even know was possible until 1984 when I met Jimmy and I met some people who did take lessons with him. I didn't know that was possible. Uh -huh. um, there was no one who could tell you. There's, there was no there was no one to study that with. I mean, when I was thinking sure. about becoming a, gu a guitar player, I already had this in mind in, you know, at 18 years old when I would have gone to a conservatory. There was no one. <laughs> I wasn't going to walk in and go, hey, I'm really into trying to play the guitar like this and have sure. anybody do anything but laugh me out of the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's one of the reasons I suppose I... I try to be so completely welcoming and accommodating to every one of my students based on what they bring to me because it's an idea that's kind of that could be really important if you crush it it's over. I wasn't going to let anybody crush me. Part of my feral up, you know, self-raising kind of upbringing is that 
you know, I don't take a lot of grief. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wasn't going to let anybody stop me just because they thought I was wrong. I would just walk away from it. So yeah. there wasn't any there wasn't any other way to do it except to do it, you know, by ear. Sure. And to and to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, even today, there's no. I, I find it interesting that in the world of let's say conventional modern jazz music, you have you have to be able to play bossa novas, bebop, modal music. There's a whole spectrum, you know, from early Ellington to, you know, contemporary whatever. Mm -hmm. And yet, let's say, like, The Shape of Jazz to Come came out in 1959, and still almost nobody can tell you what's going on. I was searching for that when I was, when I, when I was a kid, but into undergrad, I was like, I'd transcribe this stuff. I'd listen to it over and over again. But nobody could tell me what was happening. Yeah. You know, even now, I don't think there's a lot of schools that are, that are going into it or people who really... I mean, you're... You, you actually literally wrote the book on uh, the properties of free music. Well, but yeah, there's not a lot of people doing it to this day, you know. No, and it's and it's on them. It's on them for that. And you know that book's been out for eight years, almost eight years now. So, and it's not as if I mean it sells pretty well for a book like that. And there's a lot of people around the world who read it, and I hear from a lot of them. But mm. I don't see it being used regularly anywhere. It's used in colleges, and some people use it. Uh, Taylor Hobinum, who teaches at Dartmouth, uses it a lot, mm -hmm. and and um, uh, but he's also somebody that really understands that. So he's the one sure. other person I can think of in the world who could who could teach the stuff I teach because he knows it very well. And um, I mean, I, I think that's a kind of a dis well, it's a disgrace, really, that that um, academia. And I'm not somebody who slams academia because I think it's amazing that people can learn how to play bebop. You know, they sure. did that. People figured that out. Yeah. But partly they could figure that out because it's based on harmony. Mm -hmm. And that's what I said in, in uh, Perpetual Frontier, The Properties of Free Music, my book, is that, you know, we're talking about stuff that is not based on harmony. Right. And so there's no Western rule to govern what this is. And so institutions follow these Western rules, and they might say, well, we love... We love, you know, Duke Ellington and Miles Davis and Wayne Shorter, and they do. But really what they can understand about what they do is the stuff based on harmony because yeah. there's rules about that. And there's, sure. there's lot, you know, endless an analysis, and they have it gives them a, a context to work in. I think the properties of free music defines the context to understand these other things. And without understand, and it's not like I define what the artist I speak about uh, did they define that? Mm -hmm. But um, that the Cecil Taylor's explanation of his music is is isn't taken seriously by academics. Uh, Ornette Coleman's explanation of harmonics is not taken seriously by academics. Mm -hmm. They try to explain it those things based on their limitations. They don't take these artists at their word. Sure. I take them at their word. Yeah. When Ornette says. We, we transpose our melodies through the clefs. That's what I, that's, you know, the fact is, if you do that, you sound like Ornette. If you don't do that, your music's going to be modal because it's going to have an implied root. Ornette is trying not to have an implied root. Yeah. So people will say, well, what Ornette means by that? No, what Ornette means by that is he transposes his, his melodies through the clefs. Yeah. So if you want to understand Ornette, take the man at his word. If you don't take the man at his word, 
there's a problem. Sure. And that's perpetuating a very deep systemic problem that exists in the arts and in institutions, in the critical establishment and in business related to music that it's fine if you do, I mean, this is, every African-American musician can tell you this. It's fine if you do, if you, you're inside the lines, you do what, what's inside the line, you step out of the lines, it might be okay, but you're going to have to somehow prove it in a way that you would never have to prove it if you're a white person with, sure. with a, you know, with a doctorate from, you know, some music school or something. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to have to do that because the notion that, that, People who are outside of, you know, who are in our society are like the other, that they're going to determine what's going to happen in music is like an affront to people who want to control it. And, you know, part of that is that's the point. Right. That's yeah, the yeah, point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the point, right? You know, right. like, let's upend that because that's part of the system that allows everybody to be horrible to people. Like, let's upend that. You know, one of the things that that I got from listening to Coltrane and reading about Cecil and you know, this is this is what I learned. It's it, it, like when I'm 17, 18 years old, it wasn't just I'm going to be a guitar player. I don't have a career goal. I'm a human being trying to contend with all the things going on in the world with the, the war in Vietnam. And I was up for the draft. Fortunately, I got a high number, so I didn't have to go to Vietnam. You know, the economy was in the toilet in the 70s. Mm-hmm. There's no future. You weren't going to get a job at a factory or for, with a corporation. Interest rates were 17%. You couldn't buy a house. It's like, you know, so we're dealing with the whole thing. The question is, what helps us to understand how to get over this? I found that in, in jazz music, a lot of the information was there. Pay respect to different people. Incl- change the way society functions so it doesn't restrict certain people, so it includes people. It's not a political thing. It's like a human thing. Sure. Like we treat each other respectfully. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just went on the idea that if I could do something that contributed to that kind of idea, maybe people, you know, in a tiny microscopic way, it might influence the possibility that people murdered each other less. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. That there was like sure. the world was slightly less worse. And I don't know that that kind of thing in particular exists in any other area of the arts except like the music that I, I, I was interested in, that that's a huge part of it survival and it's like dignity and it's fairness and it's the end of oppression, all the things that wreck humanity, like let's get rid of those. So that's in that kind of music. And, uh, I think it's sort of unfortunately not dealt with like that. And that's why a lot of things get discounted. Like, you know, I have to think about at the conservatory, people don't study jazz from 1935, much okay. which is a shame like yeah. you know they might play it but they don't get they don't get into the details of it they can go oh yes uh, you know 1939 body and soul great tune you know coleman hawkins that's a great tune and we play like that yeah but they're willing to go from 1935 to 1965 and as long as it makes sense in terms of harmony up to 1970 and beyond 1958 1959 to now not so much <laughs> Yeah, not so much. Right. They they won't deal with this whole area of music. So I mean, in some ways, that's I could complain about that, and I could rail against it, which I kind of don't. But in the way I operate, I just make my statements about it. Um, 
Sure. But in you know, in an odd way, <laughs> knowing those things and caring about it is how I make a living. Yeah. You know. Sure. But it's interesting too because it, it seems to me in in classical music you still have like people follow twelve tone music, which is yeah. kind of outside of that realm. Or I'm sure there's all kinds of. I've never really been in the in classical academia, but there's an idea that there are modern concepts or like a new music or something like that 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 follow that, that's taught in that. Way yeah, there's a but, new music component to yeah, the you classical might be right. repertoire. Right, exactly. Yeah. But you might be right in that people just say, "Well, I don't know if Ornette, Ornette Coleman may have intuited this stuff, but who knows if he's, you know, if we need to listen to him specifically." They, they don't. I mean, whatever. I can tell you, being the kind of musician I am, which is to follow Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coleman, Sonny Murray is one of my heroes. There's a vibe in it, like, well, you don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I mean, I sense it in every every aspect of my life. Like, okay, to a, you know what you do on your terms, you don't know what we do. And um, I, I, first off, that's not true. Secondly, it's unbelievably, it's difficult to deal with. But, you know, imagine like uh, being, well, Anthony Braxton, he writes operas and people say like, well, does he really know what he's doing? Does he know how you're supposed to write an opera? I mean, how are you supposed to write an opera? Yeah. Who, yeah, who right. decided that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's me asking that question but I can walk out the door and the, the cops probably aren't going to stop me in the neighborhood. But, you know, other people, it's not, not the case. And, uh, um, you know, much more severe things than that happen. And, sure. you know, the idea that that isn't what we're playing, like that thing isn't part of what we're playing, like that's what this is all about. That doesn't mean that every white kid who, who plays guitar or trumpet um, has to constantly think about that, but I don't understand how anyone would un- would would survive in this context of music if they didn't understand that. Sure. I I mean it doesn't have to be like you know, like a religious um, uh, kind of a adoration of it or anything. You know, like it's not like we have to constantly you know carry a banner around it. But there's an element of like respect for people in this that is what i think you play to we're playing to that right we're playing to that and if that isn't the driving motivation i think people are will get very confused about what's going on and if that is the driving motivation you work to overcome your confusion and it helps you to learn a lot more. Yeah. And I wonder <laughs> I think. If, I wonder if free improvisation too has a has kind of a unique place in that in the sense that you really have to trust the people that you're with. It is kind of a human thing. It's almost like each individual within the within the within the group has to contribute. It's a it's sort of a purely democratic, you know, anarchy or something like that. You know, it's, yeah. but everybody has to trust one another to in order to play together effectively. It isn't like you can rely on the form Right. Or you can rely on the parameters of the music. You have to say, all right, whatever happens in this moment, we have to be on each other's team in some regard. Well, I, I use the term operational methodology to, mm-hmm. to describe you know, what I, I, I um, refer to as four seminal methodologies. And those four seminal methodologies that I describe as unistructures, harmelotics, triaxium theory, which is Anthony Braxton's sort of part of his theory. He has a much bigger thing, volume, you know, thousands of pages. Try to read those books, man, and it's pretty dense. Yeah, but but certain things happen in those three. And then what I call very broadly European free improvisation. You know, those are ways that people operate based on somebody's idea. In the first three, there's a, a composer kind of director of it, um, uh, instigator, you know, organizer, engineer. 
And then the last one, and that impacts a collective group of people, a community of people. And then the last one is a community of people who've collectively done that. And, and um, they all engage in some kind of methodology so that while the unknown is presenting itself to them, what I would call contingencies, you know, things happen and you have to make a decision. They're prepared to make decisions uh, as they confront those things based on a certain mode of practice that they that they're they're aware of mm-hmm. and and that they're able to um, uh, consistently reproduce uh, and consistently expand upon and um, you know I think part of the problem with with people in their understanding of this is that they're not willing to change the way they un- they they try to understand it. It has to be based on harmony, or it has to be based on philosophy, or it has to be based on something other than what it is. Yeah. And if you think about it as methodology, well, there's lots of methodology around us that we can compare it to. There's lots of methodology and technology that we can compare it to. There's lots of very deliberate things going on there that um, create a, a, a uniformity in the in, in in the design and the engineering and the and the results. And we just need to have another way of talking about it and another way of looking at it so that we can comprehend it and um you know maybe that'll happen sure <laughs> i don't know yeah i don't know anymore yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you're playing let's say you you go in and you're playing you're doing a performance with any group of people do you think in advance what is going to be the methodology in this or do you just go into it with your own intuition your background your influences whatever's made you who you are assuming that everybody else is going to have the same idea like do you look at these things sort of in that from that viewpoint? Well, you know how it is that you you pretty much know who you're going to play with, right? Yeah. And you know what they do? Right. Well, I would say that um, if, for instance, I just worked with a group of people that I would associate with one particular way of improvising, the, and a lot of times in these, in these communities of improvisers, people have a kind of uh, a way of talking like, this is the music, this is it. This is well, you know, that's a way of defining what they do. And then you listen to what they do, or you hear them, or you talk to them. You can get an idea of what they're doing. I'm I cross into lots of different communities of people because that's I, I have I try to be as nonlinear about this as I can, and um, I want to know I want to be as versatile as I can, and mm-hmm. I want to have as many opportunities to play that that demand things of me as I can get. So I, I'm in a lot of different groups of people, and I've learned to read what's happening based on how I identify what's happening. You know, mm-hmm. and so I. Um, partly I would go on the idea that is, has began, I would say in jazz and was differently sort of, uh, presented and exemplified in, in European free improvisation in the sort of ad hoc thing that Derek Bailey and Evan Parker and those guys did, Mm -hmm. which is to say, well, everybody who comes is a kind of orchestration. Everybody's an orchestra. And so each individual person has certain things that they do. And each individual person has to contend with one another. And so the way they interact is very important. The mm-hmm. way they express the pulse is very important. The way they use pitches or sounds or the way they process melodic ideas, all those things are very important. So in my way of playing, sort of like trying to figure out what how, you know, what tempo people are playing. Are they doing a Latin version of all the things you are? <laughs> or are they doing, you know, the the, Arch, the uh, Artie Shaw version? Yeah. Are they doing the bebop version? Or, you know, are they doing the Jim Hall version of uh, Darn That Dream? Or are they doing the, uh, the um, 
Uh, I can't think of the guy who was going to – West Montgomery version. Mm-hmm. He didn't do that, but um, maybe sure. he did. Maybe um, did. You know, are they doing that version or are they doing something else? You have to read the signals as they come to you. The way I do it is I listen to, you know, much more meta property kinds of things like the pulse. Mm-hmm. I listen to how they interact. I listen to how – what I would say, what's the scheme in what they do? Is it a, is it a long scheme? Is it a short scheme? Are they interacting in juxtaposition to one another? Are the materials allowing that? Um, is, are there sounds like unvoiced sounds, or are they pitch sounds? Are they playing in phrases? Are they playing in in uh, uh, you know kind of riffs? You know what are they doing that's going on? And I, I analyze all that stuff as quickly as I can and try to uh, immerse myself in that kind of mode of practice, and at the same time try to put something else there that will um, you know contribute something. But I do find that. Because I think of it like that, it's difficult for me to walk into a situation and have people change what they're doing for me. Like, that almost never happens. Okay. It never happens. I can configure groups of people and rehearse with people, and they can learn how I like to do it, which is based on these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of a composite of all of those things. Sure. And so people have to know all of those things to very comfortably play with me so we can just improvise, or maybe we use a composition and we improvise. And I've had various... Uh, versions of that going on in it's, that's you know well represented in, in my discography, uh, which is now sure. 150 records and growing. Yeah, I was going to ask you about growing. that. That's yeah, a and and um, you know, so I I haven't repeated myself because I can take the overall sort of design of all these kinds of things and have that be the music. Right. And uh, you know, it's different if I play with, you know, I've been lucky. I got to record duos with Anthony Braxton and also with Evan Parker. Mm. And they're very different. Sure. Know? And I wouldn't say that I've given up anything. <laughs> I just read what they're doing. Now, when you play with Braxton, he's doing the same thing. Braxton is like is like a processor. <laughs> I mean, he is unlimited in what he will do and what he wants. He has is totally open to what's going on, uh, partly because he's so organized and he's such a nonlinear thinker. Yeah. Evan's awesome as well, but Evan Evan has a very deliberate kind of thing he does. So there's a lot of flexibility within that, but it doesn't change. And so you're going to get Evan Parker on a on a good day or Evan Parker on a bad day, and you're going to have to find a way to contend with that. Um, And so the idea to be able to improvise and have a variety of results based on who you play with, or uh, what I'm trying to do now is play with a lot of the same people and have a lot of variety of results, which is something I did before earlier in my, um, I guess you'd call it a career (laughs) earlier decades ago where I wrote different kinds of pieces to create a different kind of template for us to work in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, kind of read what's there. I I read the properties of free music. I, I read what properties are in play. Sure. So when I talk about the properties of free music, I mean it in a practical like here's how we're going to play kind of way. It's not like a philosophical right, thing. Of course, it's yeah. like saying here's the changes. Yeah. Here's the changes, you know. Here here's here's how we navigate, you know, over a 251. It's the same kind of thing except that's what you do now to be able to play. This gives it gives you a, a good understanding of how to read what's going on. And you were in my ensemble, so you remember me saying, "Now listen to how the drums are accenting the pulse here. Yeah. If you play along with the drums, you'll be more harmonic cuz harmonics is about the drums." Right. So is unit structures in a different kind of way. So sure. I try to get everybody to have a very 
practical, like mus musical uh, technique based understanding of what free improvisation is. So yeah. they base it on how everyone's playing. Sure. And yeah. not anything bigger than that. Yeah. So are you thinking in terms of, of, uh, this is a this is sort of you're thinking about these things specifically in preparation for improvisation. To what degree are you thinking in the moment? Um, well, that's a well. I'd say everything I just said is happening in the moment. Sure, but you're 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 relying on this thing that okay. Well, here's all these things that I've listened for and and listened to, and I understand that this is the parameters of the music or these are the properties. Then in the moment, you have that as sort of your vocabulary, maybe not not in the yeah maybe, maybe in your expectations. Yeah, like yeah, what yeah. you know so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, again, I, I like that idea that, like, improvising... I, I mean, I, th I have a very practical uh, sense of what improvising is, that mm -hmm. it's making a spontaneous decision when confronted with some contingency. Sure. So you could, might be sitting there playing, and you think, oh, we're doing this, and then something else comes along. Well, then it's a question of how I respond to that. So if I have a very long scheme expectation, like, okay, we're going to go, and it's going to be like this. And it doesn't happen. Well, it's not going to work. So I have a very short scheme. Yeah. I listen in very short durations so that I can respond. And by doing that, I have to say that um, I one of the reasons I still like playing music is that uh, I'm in situations a lot where I have kind of no idea what to do. Like when I get there, maybe the best example of this, but this is an ongoing thing. And it's the same as playing with Anthony Braxton, which I haven't gotten to do enough, but when I have, it's been amazing. Mm -hmm. Play with Faye Victor, who's a fantastic vocalist and one of the most open-minded people I ever met in music. And she put together this group with me, Sam Newsom, who's like that and is a wizard of saxophone, soprano in particular, mm -hmm. and Reggie Nicholson, who is also like that. Who These are like incredible musicians. I have no idea what's going to happen except that I have no idea what's going to happen. Like sure. we start and something goes on and we, we trust each other and work together and we hear what everyone does very respectfully. And Faye being the leader organizer of the band, sometimes she brings in some compositions, but you know, we sort of pivot off of her at, a, at least a lot. And she's so open that we all just listen to each other, and sometimes we're in perfect unison. Sometimes we're in extreme juxtaposition, and everybody has a sort of unspoken way of understanding that this is the music we're making. <laughs> and yeah. I haven't done a gig with them that was close to being the same way twice, and it not because one became a Bossa Nova gig and the next one became right. a Free Jet. It's just that this happens, that happens, this happens, this happens. We find a spot, we lay out, we interact in... in you know, all the ways you can. And there's a trust that this is what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. that, <laughs> this is, this is the gig. And, uh, I, I, I really think it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life. And, and the fact that it also has like, it's also soulful and it's political and it grooves and it's noisy. She calls the group, um, sound noise funk. Um, and it's all those things, but never like any kind of predictable version of that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's one example of me being able to actually improvise with people. And, sure. and, and I would say all the time, 
and maybe most especially when I'm one-on-one with a student or in a group of people who are students who are learning how to do this, I'm listening to them. I'm trying to play what everybody's bringing to it. I'm not saying, here's what to do. We may have talked about it because I'm the teacher. Here's what we're going to try to do. Once we get going, we have to respect each other. We have to listen to what's going on. We have to process what it is and have some ways of dealing with it. And those solutions have to be um, sort of governed by a a consistently kind of mutable uh, approach to everything. We We have to be able to transform everything we hear and what we play and violate our own expectations sure <laughs> constantly yeah yeah yeah. that's the best part that's when you learn how to do things you never did before yeah so i would say that one of the best things about my life as a guitar player is that i've been consistently in situations that had no guitar part and i've i've been allowed to put the guitar part there yeah i i think that's amazing that it, it, it i didn't really understand that until you know maybe 10 years ago but um that's what I've done. I, you know, I, I play with people. Go okay, you. <laughs> they ask me to play with them, and then I have to figure out what to do. Yeah. And so all of it has been like an invention on the spot, based on what's going on, and having, uh, like, not wanting to rely on what anybody said I was supposed to do. Sure. I guess they wouldn't call me for that. I don't yeah. Know. And that sounds like that keeps you out of uh, the trap of repeating yourself or of falling into your own. Because no matter what you do, whether you're playing changes or playing free music or whatever, you could fall into your own cliches in some regard or fall into your own habits or something like that. I mean, we all do. I, I can hear myself doing things that I um, have done a million times, but um, they, they don't always... I, I, have to, I have to think beyond that as much as I can. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I want to give the impression that, that I've never repeated myself. I think we all have a default. Or like, like I said in the book, you know, we can only play what we know how to play, we can also learn something on the spot. Mm-hmm. I like being in the situation where I have to learn things on the spot a lot on yeah. every gig. And, um, you know, I like to work with people who are happy playing that way. Sure. I, I really don't, you know, I, I've already been through the the thing of, you know, working with people that were miserable. I don't really want to do that right. anymore. Yeah. I, I like it to be a happy adventure. Sure. You know? yeah. yeah. And and fun and, and open and... Um, I don't have the expectation that anything is the music. Sure. I, I just don't. I just think, like, it's a, it's a perpetual frontier. That's what I call the book, yeah. and I mean that. Like, uh, yesterday I played, uh, I, had a, um, I have a student named Michael LaRocco, who's a terrific young drummer here yesterday, who, you know, used a lot of different sound palette on his kit, and he's organizing things. He's a terrific, terrific young musician. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we're lately we've been getting into like how do we deal with groove more, you know? Um, where some people go, well, we don't, we're never going to. That's over. Sure. And I think like, I mean, I've said this to people like, so what? We're never gonna like think of all the things that we can do that are great. That we're what? We're never gonna do them again. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You know. Sure. But you want to be able to incorporate all that stuff into them. You want to be able to. Yeah, draw how, from everything. How do how do we make it meaningful again? Sure. You know, how, well, let's try. Let's see what we get. And maybe maybe we'll fail. Maybe it'll be obvious. Maybe there's something about it that um will uh cause some people to go, "Oh, I I don't care about this." Mm-hmm. Oh, well. You know, that's the risk you take yeah. trying to be creative. It, it's part of the it's you know, it's an adventure if you do it like that. Otherwise, it's over. 
You're yeah. going to do what you've been doing your whole life like it's a product. And you either have, you know, it's either a good version of it or a bad version. And that's it. Sure. Yeah. Adventure's over. Yeah. But it's a, it's a high risk, high reward kind of approach to, to, to music because you have nothing to fall back on. It, it's at least an artistically high rewarding thing. You're right. You know, it's a tough thing to, to try to, to do it like that because in a way you're asking everybody in the room to go with you everybody in the room to to be able to hear things differently but i also think that's a big part of what this is and i i think it's it goes back to it having its sources in african music that like you know music in at least in you know in a traditional sense in africa was about marking time you know history is stored in music and melodies and rhythms and songs and in in, in uh, you know certainly in every uh, culture where music is used like that, um, and in African music, and so in a way, if you do something that you never heard before, th- and the people in the room are receptive to it, they have an experience that marks that moment in time, and hmm. they can't have that any other way. And um, hmm. yeah, and and so we don't have to define the whole thing for everybody. People listening to it defines it as much as what we do. You know, like if they say, well, you know, while that happened, I thought about something or I want to go home and write a story or, you know, I, it made me feel really good or, you know, it really confused the hell out of me. They're basically saying something happened while this went on. And, yeah. and I think that's what we're really trading in. We're really trading in creating a sense of music that people can't just reflect on the past about. Sure. They have to be right in the moment with it. And and if we can remind them that their experience with it as it's happening to them, as they're listening to it, is a very valuable, important part of it. That's what we're trying to get everybody to experience. It it it, it makes a lot of sense. Sure. And um otherwise we go, well, you know, this is our music and it comes from this and it's about this and if you don't know this, you're a square. <laughs> yeah, right. You shouldn't be listening to it. We're discounting having a like an actively configured audience in front of us. We're saying you should know what went on in 1958. How would they? You know. Yeah. So if we invite everybody to be as spontaneous about their listening as we're trying to be about our music, then we're still it's still a real thing. And that's one of the reasons why I keep doing it because if I have ten people in the room and I play for ten people a lot, still. Those ten people might walk away and go, "Well, that was different." Whereas if there's ten thousand people, they're going to come to hear me do something they know about. Sure, and that's really a a that's certainly an element of going to see, going to hear people play fully improvised music at any time. Is that that's a unique performance? Yeah. That's the only time exactly. you're going to hear that performance. Exactly. It's not to say that every rock performance is going to be you know precisely the same, but you're going to hear the same songs and you're going to hear the stuff that you know from the record. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's cool Nothing. too. And that can be um, it's it's interesting that you that you put it as this is a mark in time because that's what yeah. people remember is oh that show that I went to and that yeah. experience that I had in that one moment or and that can define a whole let's say couple years of your life as being like that was the year that I was into this and I went to go see this but free music is that is you're gonna see that in the moment right now it's one minute's music in one minute's time yeah and that's the experience you're gonna have then yeah and and the way the listener reflects on that experience is what the music is about yeah it's not the other way the the configuration to get it there well that's interesting to those of us who are musicians and it can be interesting to everybody but 
we don't want that to be more important than the fact that somebody comes away with some sense of their own experience, their own inspiration, their own determination, maybe, you know, their own critique. Of sure. That, that, and if it's a unique version of that, if we're dealing with people that we invite to have that, and, or if we invite people that we're dealing with to have that experience and, and they're cool enough to let it happen, which is not always the case. Sure. And that's one of the reasons why we have to play to a small group of people because it, there just aren't that many people there yeah. that are that with it all the time. Sure. Um, we can't say, here's what you're supposed to think as you walk in the door. If we go, tell us what you think. Yeah. They, people have a different experience with things, and they like to be invited to do that. And I think, again, that's one of the problems with, with music now. It's, it's, it's almost like, especially for someone people younger than me who didn't have the experience of all that coming together. It's sort of the, it's sort of the boomer <laughs> generation inflicting everything on, on younger Maybe, people sure. going, this is what's cool. This is what we used to do. <laughs> you know, I mean, you turn on the radio in the car and they're still playing the James gang from 1973. I yeah. mean, I, I don't want, I didn't want to hear that then. That stuff is awful. <laughs> you know, I, I sure, heard yeah, that. Yeah. I, I heard that when the time I went to see Led Zeppelin, that band open for him. And I thought, well, that's awful. And then I listened to Led Zeppelin. I was like, this is also awful. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised how much I don't like this. I went home and listened to Albert Eiler or, you know, got more into that after that. And it's like, you know, this is better. Yeah. And I don't know what the hell's going on in this. It sure. took me years to figure out anything. And yeah. it's still a mystery. It's still a mystery. Sure. Um, yeah. So, which is not to say that it's better, but it means that every time I, I listen to it, I can reflect on who I am as a person. I don't have to go well. Back in the '70s, I really loved this, and all my all my friends and I, we were so cool in our in our bell bottoms. You know, I yeah. can go okay. It, it it's a sort of vessel, you know, some kind of mnemonic device in a way for me to sort of um, uh, see myself. And and uh, you know, I like things that surprise me, and some things that are incomprehensible in a way continue to surprise me. Yeah. And I, man, I wish that uh, I wish that there were more people in the general public who could make their way to the outpost to see, you know, some show that they didn't expect. When I was in high school, I used to bring my friends to go see the Fringe on Monday nights. Oh, you did? And did you live up there? I did. Yeah, know. I lived oh, in from... north of Boston. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so right. we'd go in on Monday. Night. I don't even know how we managed it because we'd go see them, and then we'd wake up at six a.m. to go to school or whatever. We'd be so you were like me, one yeah. One yeah, yeah, yeah. We would go in and check it out, and it you was blow our mind every yeah <laughs> for sure. But I bring my friends who weren't musicians at all, and they all took something out out of it as well. Right. I mean, it's not a music. Maybe more so. Yeah, yeah. certainly. And and none of us knew what was going on. I mean, yeah. it was totally mind-blowing every time. And every yeah. time we'd see, you know, free music in whatever capacity, but it's the kind of thing that it's not specific to musicians. It's not like we're sitting around analyzing this stuff. Oh, it's really interesting the way that he played the such and such over the whatever. Yeah. It's like you can go in there and feel the emotion of it. You know, it'd be great if we could get more people, more people in the outpost to check this out and get their minds blown. It's not for everybody. I mean, some people may not, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a sticky uh, thing to try to hope that it'll be popular because look what happens to stuff that gets popular. Sure. I mean, now more than ever, you know, it's, right. it's uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's an interesting point. It's, uh, you know, yikes. It's, <laughs> it's, there's something precious about it being, you know, so such a small, rarefied I guess that's the word. It's a, like a rarefied culture to, yeah. to be involved in. And, and, and you know, there, there's a way to be snooty about that, but it, it's not easy to be snooty about something when you're you're one of five people in the room, you know? Sure. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes nobody's making any money. And, um, 
people are doing it out of the love that they have for the experience of doing it, whether they're listening or they're playing. Um, you know, uh, that part of it, you know, there's a reward in that that, that um, is an intangible reward. And like so many things that people talk about, uh, the only way to experience that reward is to be involved in it. And yet people will, you know, put pressure on you and say, well, how do you, you can't make any money at that. Yeah, but, you know, you can make money, you know, you can make, you can make a lot of money building bombs, but that's not, doesn't right. really give you any other kind of reward. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah, big yeah. money is in some pretty destructive stuff. And sure. maybe every now and then, you know, you could, you, you make a nice pizza and, and, and people, people like it or something. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like, this is like our lives. You right. Know? It's not the, it's not really the, the <laughs> yeah. point of the whole thing. Yeah. So, right. so yeah, I, yeah. you know, I remember being, being young, you know, and thinking, well, if I could do this and eat, I got to I got to beat, you know, yeah. I, I really like I'm, I'm in good shape. And sure. fortunately, uh, I've been able to eat and, you know, I've done okay. And, um, you know, I also like, you know, my family situation is cool. My wife is the same kind of way. She'd rather be creative every day and like be out in the woods or, you know, be able to think than than um, you know, have things, even sure. though, you know, we have plenty of things, we're fine. Um, but, uh, she says, like, some people are producers and some are consumers. Well, some people in the audience are producers, you know, mm -hmm. and some people are consumers. And it's not to say that we can't survive without consumers, but I don't want to be a musician who is somehow consuming stuff and not producing anything. Sure. You know? Yeah. And and so I'll, I'll take the trade. Um, you know, I try to produce some information that I can share with young people so I can teach, so I can get paid, and, and so that I can make some music that I can share with some other people. And yeah. that, that's worked out you know, well, I, it's funny too, because like you teach at a place like NEC and there are people there who are on the Boston Symphony Orchestra teaching, you know, they're doing better than all of us improvisers. They're still teaching. Sure. So they have an extra day. So they're teaching and, yeah. and, um, they're not doing it for charity. They're getting paid. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So it's part of the, how you apply your trade mm -hmm. as a musician. Like, you know, you play weddings, you teach, maybe you teach kids, you teach in a college, you you play in the symphony, you play it, and then at the end, you play a jazz gig or you play the music that you totally love. Yeah. And um, I think people forget that. I remember it a lot because I, I'm almost up to being the second half of 100 years of there being an improvising musician in my family. My Uncle John started playing the drums professionally in 1920. I know he recorded in 1924. Wow. Yeah. And what did he play? Jazz? He played drums. Yeah, he played jazz. He was a singer. He played with Paul Speck. He played with Vincent Lopez, Tony Pastor. You know, he was like a swing guy and an early jazz guy. He played with Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti and the Dorsey brothers and Adrian Rolini and, you know, all those heavy hmm. guys. Sure. And, and um, you know, he in his day, he worked. They had an orchestra that played before silent movies. You know, there was like the pit orchestra. And then... He play like dinner, dancing kind of thing at a hotel, mm -hmm. and uh, when radio came in, he'd do radio instead of the movie thing because that was over, and play in the dinner dancing, and then a concert or something like that. He played in orchestra pits, and then then he'd go and do jazz gigs. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so he used all of his skills as a musician, and he and he was he played drums and he was a singer, and. Um, so he wasn't just, you know, he in a way he's maybe even well better known as a 
as a singer. Um, and he did, he did fine. And, um, he didn't give up making money because he wanted to play jazz. Uh, he made money and he played jazz. Yeah. Well, you <laughs> yeah. gotta survive for sure. Yeah. You know? And, and, uh, that's another thing I tell young people, like, you know, do everything. Don't let it wreck your life. Don't let, don't let any part of this wreck your life. Like that's already, we already learned that, you know, yeah. we already learned that that, that can happen if you get too, um, perfect about all this like yeah you know good people should have a good life and you know have people family in it and you know be able to go to the doctor and you know eat well and have a safe environment and nothing about the kind of thing i do is worth giving that up you know there's ways to have you know i i moved pianos and played music yeah i had a job as an estimator at a moving company for years while I made five records a year for different record labels, including one for ECM hmm. and went to Europe a bunch of times. Sure. I managed to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And, um, having grown up with no, no money and having no support financially from anybody in my family, I had to work. And, um, you know, I figured out, you know, by, by being able to, by working and playing music, I developed like carpentry skills so I could buy a house and fix it up. Mm, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some things about the limitations of music enabled me to make my life better because I had to confront a bunch of different things. Sure. And I think there's a lot of ways to to be very pure about a particular musical direction and and not have that have a negative impact on your life. Right. You know? Sure. Didn't you move a piano for uh, Jackie McLean once? I did move. No, I didn't move a piano for Jackie McLean. I don't think there was a piano in it, but I moved his furniture one time on Martha's Vineyard. I worked for this crazy guy. He's a great character. And he said one day, I got this shipment coming in from from Connecticut uh, for this guy, Jackie McLean. It's got to be delivered this afternoon. Who wants to take it? And I said, wait, Jackie McLean, the saxophone player? This is in 1981, 80, 1980. He goes, yeah, I think so. He's a black guy from Hartford. I was like, yeah, that's Jackie McLean. Yeah. And uh, he said, okay, you want to take it? And I said, yeah. So I went over and moved his furniture in and hung out with him for the afternoon. It was, it was really, yeah, I, did, I told you that story, huh? Yeah. Yep. It was super cool. He was really nice. And, you know, he and Dolly, his wife, were, you know, I remember saying it was like, I love Lucy or something. I mean, they were, you know, <laughs> She said, Jackie, you want me to make you a sandwich? And he said, yeah, would you make me a sandwich, baby? You know, <laughs> it was super sweet to each other. It was this really beautiful home. Yeah. You know, it was like a vacation home. And they made sandwiches for us and let, let us hang around for a while. And um, I talked to him about Elvis Costello, who he liked, and the mm-hmm. art ensemble. He told me stories about, you know, some of these stories are well-known, but he told me about the first time he played with, with, uh, with Miles and about, how much he didn't like Charles Mingus <laughs> told me all these stories. It was, it was very work, cool. It was, it was, job, it was very cool. Uh, yeah. It was, I, I asked him, I said, what's it like to be like a legend of jazz? You know, like you're like a legend. Mm-hmm. And, um, he said, and he wasn't like the first guy I'd met like that, but you know, it was a particularly kind of, it was a different situation. I think he was really surprised because he said, how do you know about me? I said, well, I'm a musician. I mean, I, yeah, I know a lot about you. I listen to a lot of your records. He said, oh, I don't really know, man. I don't really know what it, you know, I can't really say how I feel about about being a legend. I mean, I, I'm just like living my life, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, That's funny, but he yeah. told me a lot of stuff that day. I guess I asked him a lot of questions, and he was very, very forthcoming, very sure. um, open about it all. It's pretty good. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So how'd you go from moving 
moving stuff to teaching at NEC? Um, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, anybody uh, listening to me talk knows that I, I, I can talk. And sometimes I make sense. And so following again in the sort of uh, lead, the lead of my heroes, you know, people like Braxton and Wadada, um, Cecil, Ornette, um, I would say there's a, been a lot of need in my approach to this to be able to articulate what I was thinking. Mm -hmm. And being on my own and not being part of a trained community of musicians, I often had to explain myself to musicians that would play with me in, in I would say, pretty... Pre, I, had to, I had to configure the way I explained myself. Sure. And yet I got good results from the musicians I played with, and none of them knew this, this kind of thing. I played with an incredible bass player named Sebastian Steinberg, who was maybe you know, the most intuitive, just like friend I ever played with. He mm -hmm. was a phenomenal bass player. And uh, Mark Harvey, who ran um, the, the um, Music at the Church series, introduced me to Sebastian. And I hit it off. We hit it off. We were really good friends, and we played a lot of stuff. And I'd bring in pieces, and we'd play them. And I never really had to tell him anything. You know, he just played. After mm -hmm. that, when he was gone, he went to New York and got busy, and I couldn't play with him anymore. Um, I had people that would come and I have to explain the whole thing to them. Yeah. And some of them didn't like that I was explaining it to them. And some of them thought I should be able to explain it to them differently, but none of them knew what I wanted until I explained it to them. Sure. And I guess, uh, from that, I learned to sort of write about it. And so I wrote some things about it and I was interviewed quite a bit. And, um, where did you, you write about it? Where, I, mean, I wrote liner notes about it. I wrote, okay. I, I did a bunch of interviews, you know, during the, during the nineties, I had a lot of press a lot of press, um, and I guess I got a reputation. Well, not only did I get a reputation for being, you know, hard-headed and being very opinionated, I also got a reputation as somebody who could explain what I was what I was doing. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, I spoke to um, uh, some people about at a certain point. I said, "Well, you know, I, I think I need to teach because, um, you know, I, I couldn't do the the day job anymore." Mm -hmm. And um, one of them, actually, was the the cellist Daniel Levin, who you might oh, yeah. know. Yeah, he was at NEC, and he asked Alan Chase, who was the department chair, the jazz department chair, mm -hmm. if he could study with me. And I knew Alan from the scene in Boston, but not well. I had subbed for his ensemble a couple of times, and he told me at one point if he ever ever had, had the chance to hire me, he would. But that was years. I had taught at Tufts at the Experimental College on the advice of Lewis Porter, who's a great musician and scholar who I knew as a friend. And I did some stuff around Tufts University, but I wasn't attending Tufts. And he said, you should teach. There's an experimental open college. You should submit a, a syllabus and a course description and apply. And so they hired me. So I taught this course. And the syllabus for that course is essentially the outline for the book, The Properties of Free Music. So okay. that's how I was thinking. Yeah. And so I had kind of a reputation as somebody who could get, who had done a lot of stuff at the time. I already had quite a bit of records out. I'd been around the world and I had a lot of good press. And so Alan said to Daniel, yeah, 
you can study with him. And he called me up. He said, this is not going to change your life, but you can have one student every two weeks. And I said, okay. And I hung up, but I thought, this is going to change my life. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I got hired, and they put me on the faculty. And um, word spread that I could, I could explain some of this stuff, and I started getting more students. And it took a few years. And then uh, after a couple of years, maybe two or three, two, I had a couple of ensembles. The, the first year I had ensembles, I had, I think, three ensembles. And I still have three ensembles. Mm. And my studio started building up. And then um, so it sort of just worked like that. It was like I had a reputation locally, at least. I was in Boston, so that helped. Yeah. Um, and uh, as somebody who could actually do this thing that wasn't being done there. They had, a, they had had one guy that they sort of let teach there, but they didn't pay who was pretty controversial, and um, he was covering this sort of free improvisation way in, 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 in a, I would say, a, quite a different way than I, I did it. And so I think um, Alan saw it as a chance to um, give me a shot. Mm -hmm. And so I took it as, like, you know, precious. I mean, I, my, <laughs> I, I take every moment in that place as, like, a precious, miraculous gift that here I am, I better do something with it. And... and um, um, the cool thing about it is that they let me. Yeah. <laughs> they let me. I mean, you know, people haven't asked me what I do. Like, nobody on the faculty, no, no one's ever said, so what do you do, Joe? Like the students do. Yeah. I don't think they ask each other. You know, it's just this kind of consortium of, like, independent like, kind of planets that somehow impact the student body. Sure. So that's how I got hired, you know. I was, I was invited to join the faculty, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty good. I mean, it seems like everything kind of came together at the same time in that regard. And it, I mean, you know, you've had you've built up this whole sort of uh, way of discussing it or think way of thinking about the music, yeah. and you've been entrenched in that style for so long. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be your teaching. There has to be a result of your sort of uncompromising approach to that music as well. I mean, in the sense that you you dove direct in. You didn't say I'm going to do this for fun sometimes, and I'm also going to yeah. play weddings or I'm going to try to get a gig in whoever's, you know, it's like you had to really commit to that. I mean, there world. are other people who, you know, Alan Chase is one of them. Uh, you know, he's a pretty remarkable, he's Dominique's husband, by the way, Dominique. Eats, oh, but, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's an amazing player. He's I, incredible. I, yeah. I mean, you know, he's one of my heroes as a thinker. Mm -hmm, sure. Cause he knows everything. Yeah. I mean, he can do, he can do what I do. So, I mean, part of, part of him, uh, you know, part of what's cool about the whole experience is that in, and Alan being a very generous person, very, um, I don't know if generous is the right word, but he, he acknowledges what people have. He's a very positive person. And, and um, you know, he could have said, well, you know, I could teach you what Joe would teach you. He could have done that, um, but he didn't do that. And, um, um, he, you know, he's also the kind of person who, would, who knows that the unique, you know, he's like the rare, rare, rare truly academic scholarly jazz historian master musician who also understands that there's a part of this that is personal that you know if you don't connect with that you don't get it like yeah. he is the absolute rarest of the rare sure. people he's yeah. also modest so that he doesn't overwhelm everybody with his with those traits the fact that he has those traits and i think everybody that knows him feels that way about sure him. yeah so i'm not the, the only one uh, he's well known as a special kind of person, but, um, 
So I think he knew that I was hardcore. Sure. <laughs> I would yeah, say yeah, yeah. that people have known I'm hardcore about this stuff. And my hardcore um, uh, commitment to this, you know, can, can bother a lot of people. It can bother a lot of people. And I would say sometimes it's my fault that it's bothered. And sometimes it's their fault. Sure. And uh, sometimes it's, it's cool. Um, but you know, this is a, this is a thorny little topic. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a contested area. It's, it's, it's a, it's a fine art and people don't take it lightly. Yeah. And, um, uh, there's certainly people who, who wouldn't think that I would have really the, I don't deserve to have anything good happen <laughs> because I haven't done anything the way I'm supposed to. And, you know, like I always say, I tell people about how for years people have come up to me and say, well, how do you get to do this? You don't play like you know, this person and that person and that person and this person and that person. And I go, well, that's how, you know, sure. they don't go, Hey, it's cool. You don't play like all these people, you know, instead it's like you're supposed to, and you're failing at it. So that means you're disqualified from doing it. They, they don't get the point. Right. I think, you know, where I've been lucky is that some people get that point. <laughs> they get that like having your own ideas is actually what we're looking for. Sure. And yeah, yeah you can't base that on, what could happen in the future. You know, we don't, you know, nobody, you know, you're a great trumpet player, Bobby. Thanks. If no one could say, by the way, you should be like Miles Davis was when he was 50 years old. Like if they do that, you have no, you have no business playing. Like there's, that's sure. a completely irrational expectation to have on. Yeah. Somebody. And I'm not Miles Davis. At and you never and, will be. And you'll I won't be, be. You'll be you at right. 50 and years it isn't, old. It's, 19, it's irrelevant. 60 or 1970, whatever, yeah. however old it was. It's you know, an irrelevant way of looking at stuff but some people look at it like that sure. and then some people don't yeah. and and so um i i guess i've been lucky that i've been able to be around people who don't sure <laughs> and, yeah. and and that that's worked out that's worked out pretty well i also you know one of the great things about teaching at a place like nec is that i don't have to know everything i don't have to be the expert on changes i know i know changes but i'm i don't would never compare myself to jerry berganzi or McNeil, John McNeil. Sure. Those guys are giants, right? Yeah. You don't need to know that. Sure. You know, I can work with people who are new to it and I can help them get through it and navigate over chord changes and play tunes out of the real book. And I do that quite a bit in the CI department. I do that a lot. But if the, if it comes to a different level, I go, you need to go and study with Jerry. Sure. Because, he, you know, why that, that you're not going to do better than that. And um, that's a cool thing about being there that, um, you know, if you want to learn about aleatoric composition i'm even though i'm a free improvisation guy i'm not the person to talk to about that right go study with anthony coleman he's an expert on that sure he's in the next room you know? yeah 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 go do that so i think some people when they think about this kind of education they think that somebody is is going to possess all the information about everything and there might be a few people like that i don't know mm -hmm. uh, I, yeah. I i don't know there probably might not. you know probably not though <laughs> I, I can't think of anybody who yeah who is like that um I, I never have And known you don't even want that because then you're going to only get a minuttia of each individual. You could know everything, but you can only know a little bit about it. You know, you got to yeah, pick or, or like have a good functional understanding. Actually, yeah. Alan would be Right. One I was thinking him. Like yeah, the, he'd be the closest. The one, sure. He'd be the closest. Yeah. He's the closest I can think of to that. And um uh yeah, but you know, that also comes with uh, you know, there's a certain kind of uh hubris that you have to you know, right, he wouldn't sure. waste his time having that. So, yeah. you know, some people are above that too. So, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 it's, it's interesting, you know. Sure. Yeah. So, 
to wrap it up, if somebody wants to get into the world of free improvisation and follow a path, do you have any advice for younger people trying to figure it out? Um, yeah, well, play what you feel. Study all of the examples um, that exist. You know, you're not doing it in a vacuum. You're not going to invent the idiom. Sure. You know, part of the problem in teaching it and some of the conflicts I have with how some people teach it is that they sort of say to young people, okay, it's just free, just play free. Like, okay, then what, and they don't know what to do. What does that mean? Yeah. It's not free. It's a series of methodologies. And you may be lucky enough to make a combination of methodologies. You may be lucky enough to develop a methodology. Uh, But you're doing yourself a very bad disservice if you don't um, learn what exists. And, And to do that, you have to, like I said, you have to respect the people who created it and pay attention to what they did and... A good start for that is buy my book, Perpetual Frontier, The Properties of Free Music, which is Reedy Publishing, and it's available from squidco.com and catalyticsound.com and omfidelity.com. Great book. If you want to buy it, and it will get you going on a lot of that stuff. And uh, I'd I'd say the other thing is to engage with it as an adventure, and do what you can to respect yourself and the people you're involved with while you risk failure. Because if you think you're not going to um, fail in one way or another, um, you're not really dealing with it. Um, this is sure. about risking your the way people perceive you and risking the way people understand you. You can fall back on what everyone believes is good, at which point you're probably not really doing it. Um, if you can decide that something is good, but maybe it doesn't make sense to everybody else, you might be closer to it. You know, there's sure. a there's a component of of failure, the risk of failure, that can help you to learn how to how to improve on it. I'd say the other thing is while you're doing all this stuff, record yourself. Everybody has a has a tape recorder in their phone now. Sure. It was a big deal back in the day to just be able to record yourself. But listen to yourself and find out what you do and see what parts of what you do are worthy of expansion. I think if you if there's something in your own playing that you like and you can comprehend it and identify it, then you'll know how to build on it. And you'll know how to edit out the parts that are meaningless to you because you want to get a higher percentage of intentional um material in your own playing things that matter to you that you believe in that you think speak about who you are this is all about putting ourselves out there in music and being able to declare who we are in the world be a good person so that (laughs) what you declare has something of value to somebody whatever that means i don't know i don't know that i'm a good person but i just know that i try to be a good person and so um if you have something that's that attempts to align itself with better things uh people will respond to it you know yeah great that answer your question sure does sure does man yep perfect uh so if people want to find out where you're playing you're playing all the time where do they go i don't know i mean (laughs) facebook sure you know you can find me on facebook that's the easiest way i post things on facebook years ago uh (laughs) years ago i this is quick i was in new york and a guy walked up to me and he said you know i'm always trying to find out where you play but you don't post it anywhere and i said 
you know, at the time I live out here in the woods, I got kids, you know, my wife and I'm on tour for weeks at a time. I don't really want to know everybody. I want everybody in the world to know that I'm not home. Sure. So I would tell everybody, I just did the gigs and I said, well, I said to the guy, well, maybe I don't want anybody to know where I am. <laughs> and then I walked away and I realized it was one of the critics from the New York Times. <laughs> that was dumb. So I post things on Facebook. That's the best way sure. to find out what okay. I'm doing. And yeah, yeah. I don't always, you know, I do, sometimes I do a lot so that things are done in a short notice and other times there's a little bit more notice, but I, I don't bombard Facebook with a constant, uh, self-promotion thing i kind of don't like to do that so. no doubt yeah yeah well they'll find keep it. your eyes peeled yeah you know? sure all right well thanks a lot thanks, joe Bobby. i appreciate thanks, you doing all right gang well that was great big thanks to joe morris for sitting down talking to me about his life in free music uh, we had a lot of fun i hope you did too if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing here uh, you can follow the jazztopia soundcloud page or you can find me on facebook at bobby spellman music or on Instagram at, at Bob Spellman, and I'll keep you up to date with what's happening. Uh, next week, we got a great guest talking to bassist, composer, and the band leader of Mostly Other People Do the Killing, Mappa Elliott. Uh, that was a great conversation. Mappa and I had a lot of fun. He, he really got into his uh, philosophy behind some of the music he's made and his methodology and the, uh, the history of Mostly Other People Do the Killing and some of his other wildly named bands. So be sure to come back next week, check it out. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right, gang, everybody have a great week. I'll see you.